welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. I want to quickly remind you that uh, a volunteer among you, Charlie Fabian, has agreed to handle an inflow of emails with suggestions for materials or events that we would cover in our program to better serve your interests. If you have any such thing, please send it to charlie.info438 at gmail.com. Once again, charlie.info438 at gmail.com. Today, we're going to talk about the Koch brothers closing a factory in Florida and what it means. We're going to talk about oil companies and their finances. I'm going to explain to you the significance of the fact that Walmart and Amazon are by now the largest food grocery companies in the United States, far outdistancing the companies that you think dominate the grocery business. And finally, we're going to take a hard look at the notion of a middle class. What is it? Does it exist? And why is it talked about in the way that it is? And in the second half, we will have a remarkable interview with Jared Yates Sexton, an important blogger and writer in his own right, who has important ideas about what's going on in the United States and the world today that he will share with us. Okay, let's begin. My attention was caught recently when a story emerged about a company in Florida. It's owned by the Koch brothers, notorious for their right-wing support of virtually every kind of libertarian and right-wing project in the United States. This is a mill in Florida employing 500 people, and the Koch brothers who own it have decided that they're going to close it. But what's interesting is not only that they're doing that, which is, of course, terrible news for those 500 families, for the communities in which they will no longer be able to spend the money they're no longer going to be getting, and so forth. But it's interesting for another reason. The Koch brothers applied for money, money related to their difficulties running the business during the pandemic. And as you all know, Programs were developed in the United States to help companies hurt by the pandemic. So here we have the state of Florida about to give large amount of money, millions, to a company whose way of thanking the people of Florida is by closing the factory. Why am I bringing this up? Because there's an obvious alternative. If you're going to spend public money to help a company, then we have much more important things to do than to give it to people who are already among the richest billionaires in the world. The Koch brothers running right up there in the top two, three hundred billionaires, richest billionaires in the United States. We don't need to give them more money. Moreover, why are we closing this factory? We ought to keep it open. That would be an enormous service to the 500 families and the communities that depend on them. Use the pandemic money to give the workers a chance to buy out the enterprise, to reorganize it. Let the workers run the factory. Let the workers run the mill. Keep it open. 
all of those things are much better outcomes than giving millions of dollars of public money to people who are already the richest billionaires in our country. What kind of craziness is this? Let me turn next to a statistic that I think will shock you as much as it did me. Between 1985 and 2018, the 25 biggest oil companies in the world did $20 trillion worth of damage to the climate. That's the estimate of climate analytics. Keep track of these things. They earned these same 25 companies over the same years $30 trillion. So climate analytics asks the logical question. If they earned $30 trillion, but did damage to the environment of $20 trillion, we could say to them, you have to pay a tax of $20 trillion out of your 30 to repair the damage you did to the environment, and that will still leave you with $10 trillion of revenue over those years. And what that teaches us is that normally companies in the fossil fuel business, and indeed in many other businesses, do all kinds of damage to the environment that they are never held accountable for. They are not taxed to fix it. They are not fined to fix it. They are not paid to make sure they don't do it in the first place. They just go ahead because they kept the $30 trillion they earned and they didn't have to pay for the $20 trillion damages they did. Imagine how different our lives would be if climate analytics idea took hold and we made companies that damage the environment pay for the damage before running off to the bank with their profits and their dividends and their sky-high corporate executive salaries. Third item is just a way to understand how the American capitalist system is evolving. Walmart and Amazon, already two of the top 10 corporations in the United States by most measures, huge, enormous global corporations, quietly over recent years, they have become the major grocery stores in this country as well. Yeah, the people that sell us food that we buy every day. If you add Target to Walmart and Amazon, another monster company, we're talking, just to give you an idea, that together, recent years, 2022-2023, they did, the three of them together, about $60 billion worth of grocery sales. By comparison, the two largest grocery chains, Kroger and Albertsons, together did $20 billion. Three to one ratio, monster corporations, monopolies in effect, becoming monsters in one field after another. Walmart isn't just a department store. And Amazon isn't just a delivery outfit. They are expanding. They are, you might say, colonizing other industries to bring them all under the heading of a handful of what can they be called? Czars, 
potentates. The CEO of Amazon or Walmart now presides over many industries utterly dominated by these tiny handful of companies. The last update we'll have time for in this first half of today's show has to do with the concept of the middle class. Republicans and Democrats like to talk about the middle class. Well, I don't understand it, and I don't much like it, and I want to tell you why. Who are the middle class? Well, the minute you look at it, you quickly understand they're members of the working class who get paid a little bit more than other people in the working class. That is, they're people who are employees. They work for somebody else. They go to work each day, and they are told where to sit, what to do, what machine to use, in what way. They are allowed a break of a certain number of minutes for coffee or going to the bathroom. They're employees, but they get paid a bit more. Well, you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of when you go to a worker and you change the title for the worker and you hope that the worker feels better with a different title and so won't ask for more money. The example I grew up with was when bus drivers in the community where I lived were renamed transportation engineers. Oh boy. Trans- and they were told they had to wear white shirts while driving the bus. Other than that, they were the same old bus driver, but now they were in the middle class, you see, because they were an engineer and they wore a white shirt. You know, it's interesting. Other economic systems didn't do that. Slavery, everybody kind of got it. You're either a slave or you're a master, and that's the basic story. And in feudalism, you're either a lord or a serf. So what's this middle class about? Here is where I think the the power of this idea begins to show itself. It's an interesting idea because it suggests that workers have an option, that they can move into the middle class as a way to improve their situation. Well, for me, that's exactly like changing your title from bus driver to transportation engineer. You can call yourself the middle class, the schmiddle class, the model class, the mobile class. If it floats your boat, be my guest. What it isn't doing is changing your situation. Yeah, it might put a few more bucks in your pocket. Maybe even with my bus example, a clever bus company would not just change your title to transportation engineer, but put a few more bucks in your pocket. But you know, you're still a worker. You're still going to keep that job so long as the employer wants you to have it. And when the employer doesn't need you to make money, you're gone. You're fired. If the employer would like to stick it to you, he'll change your title right back down to bus driver or maybe something less than that. Maybe something really disrespectful because that's in the power of the employer to do. Here's what I think is going on. 
the real issue is employer versus employee. And the real threat to the capitalist system is the moment that the employees decide they don't want to have a job, to have their income, that of their family, that of their community, depend on the profit-driven decisions of a tiny group of people at the top of a capitalist enterprise. They don't want that. They don't like it. They resent it and they resist it. And so the people at the top have to deal with that. And here's where middle class becomes important. It gives workers who are upset, angry, bitter, see what's going on, something to aspire to that won't threaten the system. I want more money. I want another title. I want to be able to think of myself as middle class, not poor, not working class, not underclass, not none of those. I want to be in the middle class. I'm not so deluded as to imagine I'm in the ruling class or the upper class. That I know I'm not. But I can aspire to the middle class. Well, let me be the first to inform you that you're not going to get what you imagine you get if you become middle class. All your dreams are not going to be realized. All your resentments about being on the wrong end of who tells who what to do, that's not going to be changed. You're going to have all of that in the middle. And all it's going to mean is a slight change of title, like going from bus driver to transportation engineer, and perhaps a few more bucks in your pocket. But other than that, your basic situation won't change. You're in the employee class, the vast majority, not in the employer class. And that is the problem to which you need to address your brain, your time, and your energy. We've come to the end of the first half of today's program. Please stay with us for an important interview with Jared Yates Sexton. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I am very pleased and honored to bring to our microphones and camera Jared Yates Sexton, someone I've admired for quite some time now. He's the author, most recently, of The Midnight Kingdom, a history of power, paranoia, and the coming crisis. He co-hosts the Muckrake podcast and blogs at Dispatches from a Collapsing State. So first of all, Jared Yates Sexton, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor. All right. Let me begin by saying I often talk about a declining American capitalism undermining the American empire and a declining American empire undermining American capitalism, a story that isn't all that new if you know about how previous empires have uh, fallen apart. I want your thoughts on that thesis. You know, does it make sense to you? Is it something that you also want to explore, do explore in your book or in your other work? In other words, tell us how you see the interaction of empire and economic system. 
Well, first of all, you know, th this was something that I had to come to an understanding of when I when I was cutting my teeth on politics. It was back in 2003 with, uh, you know, the, the beginning of the illegal war in Iraq. And, you know, like a lot of other people, I think a lot of good liberals, I believe that if we protested enough, if we put forward enough, you know, if we like made the case, it wasn't going to happen. And to suddenly realize that it hurt America and that it hurt American empire in terms of standing that hegemonic sort of power. It took a while for me to understand that capitalism co-ops empires for itself. It takes away from any sort of a national interest. It, it, like with America, it obviously was passed the baton from the British Empire following World War II, and it became the main vehicle for capitalism. And over time, and I had to write the Midnight Kingdom to understand this, what happens is as inequality grows and as capital accumulates with a few hands, corruption grows and politics is overtaken by the wealthy and the powerful. And suddenly government is, you know, mainly a vehicle for those interests to grow. Eventually, it reaches a point with neoliberalism and, and, and with this growing inequality that all of a sudden you look around and you realize, oh, national interests aren't being served. Corporate interests are being served. Wealth interests are being served. And you start to realize the American empire was simply a body for this parasite to host upon. And right now we're in a position where it really doesn't matter what happens with America. American interest, hegemonic power is starting to dwindle. You know, we look at what's happening in uh, the Middle East and everyone says America can't really do much right now. You know, they're not even able to make Israel do what they want them to do. Like what has happened? And the truth is, as, as the British empire before it and other empires before that, you start to realize that these economic systems use these bodies as hosts and they hide behind nationalistic mythologies. But the entire time they're just growing and growing until they're ready to jump off onto the next body in order to suck the blood from that body. How does that work? In other words, you're a master at explaining to us the stories that control how we make sense of the world. Can you give us an example or two of, of how how this is being managed in terms of the stories that are powerful in our culture today. Yeah, it's a really insidious thing that, I, again, I didn't totally understand until I wrote The Midnight Kingdom. But back, going back to the Roman Empire, of course, when it started to, to wane, Christianity took over. It became a driving mythology, a story that everybody lived within. And it gives people a type of reality that they can live in in order to use shorthands, you know, these archetypes that we've heard about in order to understand what's going on as opposed to very, very complicated economic and socioeconomic issues. The American mythology, the American myth that, you know, the divine right, uh, everything from manifest destiny to America is the champion of all that is good. It is a religion unto itself. It has replaced the religious mythologies of the past with a new nationalist religious mythology. And so what has happened at this point is that the wealthy and the powerful who have used America for their own purposes, they tell a story, you know, this, this conspiracy theory, which is America is a chosen country. You know, the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, has chosen America to be the, the champion of good. And what has gone wrong, right? Well, like, why have things gone, gone awry? And the powerful use those stories to distract from what's actually occurred. So now all of a sudden we're looking at satanic cabals. We're looking at dark conspiracy theories. America could only falter because evil people are making it falter. When in fact, the people who are promoting those conspiracy theories, the wealthy and the powerful, are the ones who have created the problem in the first place. 
And so what you have now with MAGA, with the right wing, QAnonism, whatever you want to call it, Christian nationalism, you literally have a faux populism. You have a group of people who have been captured within these stories, and now they've been told this other religious story about people who are going after children, people who are behind the doors, who are passing out vaccines as a way of controlling them. And it's just a different religious mythology that controls people and keeps them from understanding exactly what's going on. All right. Immediately comes to my mind two phenomena of our time, and I wonder how you position them within what you've just said. One is white supremacy and an apparent resurgence of that. And number two, the vilification and persecution of immigrants, uh, which is also at a kind of peak relative to most of American history, which, as we know, is the history of successive waves of immigrants. Yeah, you know, white supremacy is a really hard thing to sort of wrap your head around because it is so incoherent of an idea because it's, again, a religious mythology. You have to be within it and have a certain faith within it in order to, you know, square that circle. But more or less, this is always present in America. America is like most certainly a white supremacist nation. It has been from the very beginning in a settler colonialism sense. But what happens in this is the idea that if things are okay, if economics are all right, or if there's relative peace, you don't have to talk about white nationalism, right? Like it's it's behind the scenes. Like we're we're giving speeches talking about American exceptionalism. We're not talking about white exceptionalism. When things start getting hard, all of a sudden you say, you know, I think the problem is that the blood supply has been tainted. You know, like something has gone wrong. We can't trust democracy anymore. Democracy, as we look back to the Greeks and fascists of the past, democracy is what waters down that white supremacy, right? So all of a sudden, as things start getting tight, that tribalism starts coming in. You start saying, listen, you need to support us because we're going to restore the actual hierarchy, which is what the right wing is always about. The right wing is an anti-liberal force that is always interested in restoring, quote unquote, rightful hierarchies. And at the top of that, white, male, evangelical, wealthy people, right? That's what's at the top. That's who should be in charge. When things are fine, when economics are going well, when there's relative peace, you don't have to worry about that stuff all that much, right? You can hint at it. But when things start getting hard, that starts to reveal itself. The mask comes off and you start to realize what's really at the heart of this from the very beginning. What about immigration? Could you comment on that? Because it is once again, as the presidential election ramps up, becoming the scapegoat of, of, of choice, apparently, at least on the Republican side. What is that about this demonization of immigrants? If you look through American history, and, and you know this as well as I do, America is really bad at remembering its history and putting it into context. There are these cycles and, and, and these anti-immigration cycles are always in line with these moments of economic and political hardship. Like when things start getting a little bit tough, you have to find a scapegoat. Traditionally, and again, we're seeing a little bit of that now, um, anti-Semitism has been at the heart of that, particularly since Christianity was the uniting reality of everything. But now it's not just anti-Semitism, it's this anti-immigration push, which at the heart of it, you know, Donald Trump is starting to let the mask slip like in a big hardcore way because Stephen Miller, who is, of course, one of his main uh, advisors and speechwriters, wants to talk about tainting the blood, right? Which anybody who understands history and anybody who understands the 20th century has to understand this is a eugenicist 
viewpoint. This is a fascist viewpoint, and it's simply a religious mythology. It's the idea that Aryan blood or white blood is somehow or another magical and it's going to be tainted otherwise. Basically, this is an extension of the idea that Satan is out in the forest coming for us. Satan is going to possess people, turn people into traitors. But in this case, these people, these people of color, these immigrants, these refugees, whatever you want to define them as, they are extensions of an evil plot. And you know this as well as I do and your viewers do as well. There is an anti-Semitic part to this that we keep hearing, which is the idea that the Jewish conspiracy is trying to replace white people with immigrants, which says, give us power, get rid of democracy, get rid of any of these things, and we'll take care of the problem for you. Do you see the officials of the United States government, and by, here I mean both Republicans and Democrats, are they aware in any sense of what you've been saying? Are they conscious agents of scapegoating, of distracting, of getting U.S. capitalism through this, as the British might have said, rough patch? Or are they just being carried along by a process and, and speaking literally as puppets of a historical moment rather than as agents in a more conscious sense? You know, I, I like to define it into two groups. One is what I call the cynics, and the other is what I call the true believers. Um, you know, you have Mike Johnson, the new speaker of the House, who is absolutely a true believer. You know, this is a person who has grown up to believe that God has chosen to put him in a place of power. Those people are incredibly dangerous. And we're starting to see a rise of true believers, new rights, uh, crypto Nazis, crypto fascists, people who truly, truly believe this stuff. But also disturbing are, you know, the the cynics. You know, I, Ted Cruz, I think, is a perfect example of this. This is an Ivy League educated lawyer who basically has, you know, somebody on his staff pick out a Carhartt jacket so he can pretend to be down home Ted, you know. Meanwhile, he knows what he's peddling is completely useless and false. He knows that he's going ahead and carrying this out. And that back and forth relationship is something we see within the Republican Party right now. The MAGA movement is full of like a lot of like grifters, a lot of con artists, but a lot of people who also believe that the country is, you know, on the brink of collapse and they need to take over government to, to stop it. But that back and forth creates a really strange mixture. And I think some of the people involved, I think sometimes they believe it and other times they're cynics. But like we're in a very, very strange house of mirrors right now. Do you think the American people are simply, as a whole, spectators to all of this, trying to figure out what sense to make of the different perspectives, let's call them, in your case, what you just said, the cynics versus the true believers, or an, another story being told that there's some kind of fundamental disconnection that has happened? between what are sometimes called the political class people in Washington and New York and so on who who write all of this stuff and the mass of people, that there's just a disconnect and that we're, we're heading towards chaotic circumstances because the disconnected rulers are just going off untethered to anything at the base that might otherwise have held them back. Does that make any sense to you? I think you're right on both fronts. I think one of the great tragedies of the last century or so 
was the rise of the technocratic administrative state. This goes all the way back to Woodrow Wilson, public administration. And Wilson would say, I want the the public shouldn't be trusted with the controls of government. They should look upon this as a great maze and, you know, not understand how it works. And what has happened, particularly over the last century, is that we have learned that people are starting to not understand this stuff or really pay attention to it. They have become spectators, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, you know, as always, the time goes so unspeakably quickly, but you've been very eloquent as your writing also shows us you have for a long time. So I'm hoping you will come back and rejoin us in in the near future. Thank you very much, Jared Yates Sexton. And to my audience, as usual, I look forward to speaking with you again next week.